0: Hiram Lewis is a professor of history at BYU-Idaho. In 2022, he was a visiting scholar at Stanford University. He received a PhD in history and philosophy from USC. Before coming to BYU-Idaho, he taught at Skidmore College in Sarasota, New York. Hiram was born in Arizona, raised in Oregon, and now resides with his wife, Sunday, and their three kids in Rexburg, Idaho. In January of 2023, Hiram co-authored and published a book with his brother called The Myth of Left and Right. How the political spectrum misleads and harms America. In it, to be brief, the authors argue that politics is more emotional than logical, and that the categories of left and right are no longer accurate or consistent, and are doing more harm than good to a culture already painfully divided by ideology. As I shared with Hiram during our chat, rarely have I ever read a book that's remap my own internal dialogue the way their book did. It's one of my favorite political reads in the past 10 years. I hope you learn as much as I did from Hiram. Well, there we are, Hiram. Thank you so much for joining me on True Thirty this morning. I'm stoked to have you.
1: Happy to be here. Thanks for having me on.
0: Well, I found out about you while I was interviewing a young journalist named Isaac Saul. And uh, he started a intrepid little organization called Tangle News, uh, which is having much success. And I asked him after the last three years of reporting, have you have you moved in any either way? Have you moved left or right? And he actually announced immediately. He said, you know what? I don't believe in the left and the right anymore. I just had this really cool interview. With this uh, guy named Hiram Lewis, who wrote a book called "The Left: The Myth of the Left and Right: How the Political Spectrum Misleads and Harms America." For those of you watching on YouTube, this is the book. It's a hundred pages, but it's about as dense as a small planet, and it's fantastic. I really enjoyed it. And uh, you wrote it with your brother, correct?
1: That's right. That's also He's a political called... scientist. So we're yes, trying to yes. combine our perspectives of history and political science, and hopefully, the mix worked.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're a visiting scholar at Stanford. He's a visiting scholar at Harvard. So I'm sure your parents are really disappointed that they didn't do a very good job of getting (laughs) their boys educated. (laughs) So, again, I think it's uh, it's been fantastic. So why don't we just start here? How did this all start for you guys? Why did you write? Why did you decide to write this book?
1: Yeah, great question. So um, I had to talk myself out of the political spectrum. It took me a long time. Because I was doing doctoral work and um, I was trying to, (laughs) I was writing about conservatism. That's what my advisor pushed me into writing about. And so I was trying to define my terms. And the more I pushed, the more I realized I couldn't define my terms. That conservatism actually didn't exist. And so as I continued to look at this question of conservatism, what defines it, I eventually settled on the, on the idea that um, it's entirely tribal. There's nothing, there's no philosophy behind it. So people are constantly trying to say, well, this is the conservative philosophy. This is what all conservatives believe, or this is the liberal philosophy and what all liberals believe. But looking at the history of conservatism and liberalism showed me that the positions were changing so quickly and so dramatically to often mean the opposite of once what they once did, that obviously there was no philosophy or fundamental principle behind them. And so liberalism and conservatism are entirely tribal terms, not philosophical terms. And if that's the case, then a political spectrum is not going to be very useful for the obvious reason that there's more than one issue in politics. If there's more than one issue in politics, why are we using a one-dimensional model in order to talk about politics? So what we're trying to do is to get people, we're hoping it can, you know, not just have an impact on academics, but it can influence uh, the public to stop thinking in terms of left and right, because it's going to mislead them. Because every time we use a left-right spectrum, we're assuming that there's just one issue in politics, and that just clearly is not the case.
0: That's a good start. So you guys have your theories of ideology and you kind of framed it in such a way that the first theory itself was the essentialist theory of ideology. Why don't you share the listeners what that means?
1: Sure. Yeah. So the essentialist theory is how that's our default. That's what we think. That's a, that's what's buzzing around the culture. That's what everyone who's on CNN or Fox News or when talk, they talk about the left or the right, moving left, moving right, center left, center right. That's what they're all uh, assuming. So the essentialist theory says that um, a worldview or a philosophy defines these two sides of the spectrum. So I mentioned, you know, <laughs> let me let me put it this way. So I just mentioned a moment ago. There's more than one, one issue in politics. So why are we using a one-dimensional model? And most people would say, well, because all the other issues are connected. So you say, well, tax cuts and abortion are different issues. So why don't we have a tax cut spectrum and an abortion spectrum instead of just a left right spectrum? And they'd say, well, because people who who favor tax cuts are also more likely to favor abortion restrictions. And they say that must be because there's some fundamental essence, some philosophy connecting those two. And so the com- the most common essence that people propose is change. If you're somebody who likes change, you're on the left. If you're somebody who opposes change, wants to conserve things the, the way they are, you're on the right. And so if you're against change, that's what makes you Uh, in favor of tax cuts and against abortion. That's the way they put it. The problem with this theory, the essentialist theory, and the essentialist theory is just that, that there's something, there's some connective tissue tying all the positions considered right wing and tying another worldview connecting all the positions considered left wing. So the essentialist theory, um, says there's a connection there. The problem with that theory is there's simply no evidence for it. I'm aware of none. (laughs) Um, Now, now what people think is evidence, which is not, is storytelling. So if you ask somebody, well, why is it that somebody both uh, who's in favor of tax cuts also is against abortion, they'll make up a story well, saying because conservatism makes you opposed to change. And so if you're against change, you want traditional values and traditional values are against abortion. And you want to preserve the privileges of the rich and the rich benefit from tax cuts. And so preservation can explain those two. But this is exactly on par with astrology. And so I always ask essentialists, why do you believe in the essentialist theory of ideology when you don't believe in astrology? You wouldn't accept the evidence for astrology as real evidence because it's just storytelling. If if somebody born in, born in August went into an astrologer's office and said, hi, I was born in August, and they said, well, you're a Leo. That means you're brave. And they say, really? What did I do when I was brave? And they say, well, did you serve in the military? You say, yeah. Well, there you go. You're brave. It takes brave people to serve in the military. Okay, someone else walks into the astrologer's office and says, yeah, I was born in August. Really? Great. That means you're brave. Really? Did you serve in the military? No, I didn't. Well, how brave of you to 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 oppose your country's military policies. So it's this heads I win, tails you lose storytelling, and we see exactly that kind of thing going on with ideological essentialism. Because as you know, what's considered right wing and left wing is constantly changing, and so you can you can concoct a story to connect any set of policies with either change or opposition to change. So essentialism is upheld by this same kind of fairy tale. Uh, astrology story um, that upholds any other uh, pseudoscience.
0: Well, I like that, and you gave a really powerful example of Barry Goldwater and Ronald Reagan. They belonged to the same tribe and they carried the same ideological label, conservative, but did not run on the same policies. Goldwater wanted to roll back the New Deal, opposed civil rights legislation, favored abortion rights, and opposed tax cuts. And Reagan took the exact opposite approach on all of them. <laughs> so that right. was a really powerful example for me that you highlighted in your book because that shows you that the label of conservatism and conserving as a right-wing Republican is not consistent. And so the essentialist theory itself is just flawed fundamentally. And so Absolutely. one of the questions, when I was reading this book, I was—I haven't really thought about it in this framing. So there are people out there that call themselves essentialists in the sense of a political paradigm. and then, And if so, how do they defend it when someone like yourself and your brother push back on this ideology and show the flaws
1: yeah well again they would say that there's some underlying thing and they would they would immediately begin storytelling so yeah. I mean it, it gets even more dramatic because um, this is what I was doing as a historian and why I got frustrated and why I surrendered the essentialist theory myself because I was, I was looking over time from Taft all the way to George W Bush and I saw that what Taft believed in was the opposite of what Bush believed in so Taft mm-hmm. you may remember many many of your listeners won't but um, he was probably the most prominent um, Republican senator in the late 1940s early 1950s and he was considered considered to be on the extreme right wing of the republican party as opposed to say eisenhower who was considered you know kind of centrist he called yeah. himself a liberal and people said he was part of the liberal consensus all right so what was it that made taft so right wing one he was against big government two he was against war he was against foreign entanglements being against war was seen as right wing because Obviously, FDR had just led us into World War II, and so the isolationists who wanted to stay out, like Charles Lindbergh, were considered right wing. Uh, and then, of course, Harry Truman got us into the Korean War, and so those who opposed the Korean War, these non-interventionists like Senator Taft, were considered right wing. Well, fast forward 70 years or 60 years, and suddenly being in favor of war is right wing. So you say, well, what what connects George W. Bush and, and Taft? Well, they're both right wing. Really? Well, Taft had opposite <laughs> policy views. And people right. would say, well, deep down, they both were opposed to change and that opposition to change will express itself differently at different times. What's the evidence for this? There is none, but it sure makes a heck of a story. And, 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 and worst of all, but best of all for people who are ideologues is it gives them an, an excuse to indulge their tribalism. People are tribal. We know this. People yeah. join tribes and adopt the views of the group. That's that's what people do. But the problem with the political spectrum is it allows us to mask our tribalism. So if you want to just go along with everything the Democratic Party does, fine. But let's admit that's what you're doing. What left right ideology allows people to do is to say, actually, I am being philosophical. I'm being consistent. I'm following a philosophy of progressivism. And the reason I hold all the positions I do is because I'm committed to this philosophy of social justice and progress. That sounds so much better. That's so much more attractive <laughs> to people than the it idea does. that, well, tell me what the Democratic Party is doing, and, and I'll just sign off on it because ditto's Rush Limbaugh because I'm a conformist. People don't want to be conformists. People do want to be philosophers. And so the political spectrum allows them to delude themselves into the idea that they're being philosophical.
0: Another thing I learned in your book was where the actual terms left and right came from. You want to tell us a little bit about the French Revolution, and kind of how that took place?
1: <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. So so if you go back to like, um, so l- let's start with the USA in, in like 1910. Uh, if You went to the USA in 1910 and looked at journalism. Um, you would find the words left wing and right wing mostly describing architecture had nothing to do with politics. Nobody from 1910, no politician was talking about, I'm on the right, I'm on the left, center right, center left. Right. This was a paradigm that was completely foreign to Americans. So it was an architectural term primarily. Sometimes you'd use it in military. Sometimes you'd use it in sports, but mostly architecture. Well, there's a reason for that. Because if you go back to the French Revolution, um, mm-hmm. what happened was you had basically those who were in favor of the revolution. And they sat on the left side of the National Assembly, in the left wing of the hall. And then you had those people who were more supportive of the monarchy and more opposed to the revolution. And they sat on the right side or right (laughs) wing of the hall. So this whole idea of left and right came about. And it simply indicated one thing. And 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 unidimensional models can communicate about one thing. And that one thing it communicated is whether you supported or opposed the French Revolution. All right. So the Bolsheviks in Russia, as the Bolshevik movement started heating up, in the 19-teens, they adopted that left-right way of looking at things. And they said, we Bolsheviks stand on the left wing of revolution, and socialist groups who aren't quite as revolutionary will put them on the right wing. So journalists starting like, you know, 1918, 1919, who were reporting on the Russian revolution, uh, these journalists in America talking about what was going on in Russia started using the word, these terms, left and right for the first time in American history to describe politics. But it had nothing to do with American politics. It was entirely about Russian politics and what was going on overseas. It was entirely just a reporting tool to say, hey, here's what they're saying. Well, starting in the early 1920s, a guy named Robert La Follette, he was a prominent Republican senator. He said, no, 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 this left-right paradigm applies to America too. And I stand on the left wing of the Republican party and those people who are more against my socialistic agenda, they stand on the right wing of the Republican party. Well, here's the problem. Here's why left and right took hold in our country. Because when FDR became president, suddenly um, that left-right paradigm took hold, and it worked very briefly. Because I've been saying, hey, there's more than one issue in politics. But in the, in the 1930s, that wasn't really true. There really was just one issue, and that was the New Deal. And if you supported FDR's New Deal, that was considered left-wing. And if you were opposed to the New Deal, that was considered right-wing. Well, what about questions of race? Not debated nationally. In fact, you know, it was Republicans and conservatives that were more, uh, pro-racial equality. The record is Mm -hmm. very clear on this. What about questions of abortion or gay marriage? I mean, these are, these are not even on the table. They're, they're nowhere. What about crime policy? That was something debated locally. It wasn't debated nationally and it didn't have any ideological connotations. So left and right meant one thing and that was the New Deal. So the problem was, that that model used to work, and so it entrenched because it was so effective. You can say, oh, he's an the extreme left. He's really, really in favor of the New Deal, really wants to take government uh, I- control of the economy to more of an extreme. He's really, really opposed to the New Deal. He's on the far right. So when you had just one issue being debated, that paradigm worked. The problem is, is starting in the 1950s with McCarthyism, uh, a, a more um, kind of partisan foreign policy, uh, social issues like abortion and crime and affirmative action, and these kinds of things, as they came online, the one-dimensional model couldn't accommodate these new dimensions. But instead of adjusting and adopting a new map, people just tried to glom more and more dimensions onto a one-dimensional model. And that's why we're in the mess we're in now, where you can call two totally opposite things right-wing. And so if Donald Trump is against the war in Iraq, that's right-wing. George W. Bush was in favor of the war in Iraq, that's right-wing. It's all right-wing. This is a non-falsifiable hypothesis. Is somebody right-wing? There's no way to falsify that because we can call everything right-wing because our model is so inadequate to communicate political reality.
0: And that's a piece of all, and you touched on Jonathan Haidt. And so just to be candid, I'm a huge fan of Jonathan Haidt and and his book, this, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Religion and Politics. I think it was 2011 that he wrote that book and it just altered the way I framed political thinking. And your book is another one. It's a. There's very few books I've read that make me think differently about the way I see politics. And considering, you know, I host a political podcast, it's, it's a pretty big thing. And I just want to commend you and your brother for that, because as a former ad guy who moved words around on paper, my big issue was how do you frame anything? How do you name something? And you guys named something that I never really thought about before, specifically the essentialist theory of ideology versus the socialist theory. And that's actually where you then helped me understand. You've helped the listeners understand the essentialist. Why don't you explain what the socialist theory or the social theory means to you versus the aforementioned? Because it's really intriguing.
1: Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So a lot of people misunderstand the social theory. So I'll just be clear about what it is. We're not saying that nobody is at all philosophical when it comes to politics, right? I mean, if you're somebody who is a philosophical believer in free markets, you're you're an economist, you just think markets are the way to go. It's not that you have no philosophy. What we're saying is, though, the social theory says, why do we see coherence among unrelated issues or seemingly unrelated issues? People think they're not unrelated. So you have the question of markets here. That's one issue. You've got the question of abortion here or gay marriage over here. Why do we find a correlation? Why, if you're in favor of free markets, are you also more likely to be against abortion? What is it that connects those two? And I could name dozens of other issues, but let's just keep it simple with two. Why do we see them coherent? Why are people who are in favor of tax cuts also more likely to be against abortion? The essentialist theory that we've talked about says it's because they're philosophically connected by opposition to change. The social theory says they are connected by tribe. So here's how it works. Um, the essentialist theory would say you start with your philosophy. So you're a conservative. You have a philosophical commitment to stopping change. Then, based on that philosophy, you think yourself to a whole bunch of positions in favor of the war in Iraq, in favor of tax cuts, against uh, against free trade, uh, 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 against affirmative action. You think yourself to all these issues. And then you join the conservative tribe because you just happen to agree with those people because you share a philosophy and a set of positions that grows out of that philosophy. Hmm. That's the essentialist theory. Start with the philosophy, think yourself to the policies, wind up in the tribe. The social theory reverses that. It says that's backward, that the tribe comes first. So you anchor into a tribe. Once you've anchored into the tribe, then you adopt all the policies of that trap as a matter of socialization, not philosophy. And then, and only then, do you cook up a story saying, well, here's how all these things are conservative. But as I've mentioned, those stories are worthless because you could take any set of positions. Like You could randomly take 50 positions from politics today, hand them to me and say, make up a story how all of these things promote conservation, and I could do it as, as could you, right? I mean, any smart person. And so that's what's happening. It's ex-post storytelling so all we're doing with the social theory is saying we've got it backwards now where i get the pushback to our theory people like jonathan have push back on me a little bit um keith stanovich and I'm, I'm fans of both of them by the way i think keith stanovich and jonathan Haidt do terrific work i recommend um stanovich's book on my side bias i remember i recommend all of jonathan ha- jonathan Haidt's books they're terrific but where they push back a little bit is they um say and i think they're correct on this so we're maybe talking fast a little bit a little bit past each other, but that anchoring does have psychological reasons as to why people anchor. Mm -hmm. So the question we need to answer now is our book is trying to start the conversation. Once we've broken this down, once we've said the essential theory isn't true and that all these issues aren't related, well, then we can start asking about what issues are related, what psychologically different psychological types will tend to adopt um, bundles of issues, um, but there's going to be more of two of them, and and not all political issues will bundle together. They're bundled in smaller packages. So that anchoring is the question of where human psychology comes in, and that's why psychologists push put back. They think that I'm maybe um, not giving enough due to uh, the psychological factors that that uh, cause the anchoring, and that is something to consider. But but even if they're correct, uh, and I, I I guess they are at some level, it's still doesn't mean that there's just two issues, in, excuse me, just one issue in politics and only two bundles of possible positions. That's the idea we need to get rid of.
0: Okay, that's great, because was that's what I was going to ask you. You actually have in your book here, and I'm quoting, Jonathan Haidt has now conceded that there is not a simple relationship between a given moral foundation and an ideology. Rather, the moral foundation are applied differently by liberals and conservatives, depending on the issue. Conservatives are more concerned about the purity foundation when it comes to sex, but liberals are more currently concerned about purity when it comes to food for the environment. So an example there, another thing that made me think of Jonathan Haidt was the tribes are more important than the actual essential beliefs. And I agree with that 100%. And that's where Jonathan Haidt really helped me understand. And I'll share this. My listeners have heard this too many times. But the idea there is that if you represent, an elephant represents the emotions of human nature, the rider itself is logic and reason. This is one of his brilliant analogies. And so if I'm on an elephant and I'm walking and I'm howling down the street and someone says something, I love Donald Trump. My emotions immediately <laughs> spin yeah. to my ideology, what I believe. And I'm like, I think he's an idiot. So it would be the emotion dictated what I just believed. The rider is the logic and reason, which is a post hoc argument for the emotion. Right. So right. the logic and reason takes a really distant backseat to the emotion. And that's why I was so connected to what you were talking about tribally, because that is a big difference between what I see, considering where I grew up in Minnesota and all my friends back there and then my friends in rural um, California. Most of them are, are artisans. So carpenters, con- construction, electricians, those types of pieces. And where I grew up, they belong to a tribe. And what I've tried to explain to a lot of my friends, because I was in media for 20 plus years and I spent a lot of time in Manhattan and I spent a lot of time here in San Francisco where I live. And so my high school mates and my, the buddies that I grew up in Minnesota have a very different purview of the world through these lenses. And one of which is what I've always tried to explain to anyone that will listen is that it's a very complicated thing for people to move outside of that ideology because it's painful. There was a podcast I listened to that I can't cite, but it was a professor who actually changed his mores in the same way that he was like, wow, as I dive more into this, I'm becoming more liberal. And he was a very conservative person for years. As he started to adopt more liberal tendencies, he lost his friends, he lost his wife, he lost his tribe. He said it was the most difficult thing he's ever had to live through. And so there's a piece to that that connects to what you're talking about. The tribal piece is far more powerful than the actual framing of left and right because it actually doesn't make intellectual sense to say I'm on the left or you're moving further to the right. You gave some really good examples of Trump specifically and how he came about with being more of an isolationist nationalism uh, specific to, you know, if you look at even 10 years ago, the candidates from the GOP were really good men. You know, McCain and Mitt Romney and, and Jeff Blake and all those cats, like just good old fashioned Republicans. And they cared at the time anyway. As they were going after Clinton for his adultery and his debauchery, there was valid reasons. You're like, yeah, no, Clinton's kind of a douchebag and, and you know, we need to admit that. But then they said, oh, you know what? Fuck that. <laughs> Let's elect the most reprehensible human being we've ever seen, you know, to our actual president. So like that to me was also like that's a perfect example that it isn't a conservative essence to care about the moral character of the candidate because they proved the exact opposite. And if you want to look at the logical conclusion of this strategy, that's what George Santos involves now. He's the personification of a theory that no longer cares about character. So like that to me was very powerful.
1: Yeah. So it's a perfect illustration of what you're talking about. The elephant and the writer, the elephant of the emotions. You love Trump. You love what he represents. Yeah. The lizard parts of the brain light up when, when fans of Trump see Trump. Yeah. And, and so, so the emotions are in charge and, and so they adopt whatever Trump does. So for instance, uh, you mentioned the character of politicians. That's one issue, right? Do you think the character of politicians matters in their performance of office? When Clinton was president, it was like 70% Republicans, yes, 30% of Democrats, yes. And then when Trump came along, as soon as he gets the nomination, that switched, exactly switched to Mm -hmm. 70% Democrats said it's important, 30% of Republicans said it's important. Where is the philosophical consistency? There isn't any. Of course, it's not just that one. You look at the questions of trade. Republicans have long been advocates of free markets, free trade. This is part of the conservative essence. If you want to, if you're a conservative, you believe in conserving the principles of free markets. We conserve things and free markets are conservative. But as soon as Donald Trump started speaking out against trade, all the conservatives suddenly changed their mind. Did they say, well, I'm just being tribal? No, they cooked up a story and said, hey, we got to conserve American jobs. We got to conserve our (laughs) manufacturing base, right? So Everything can be conservative. You can cook up the story. I mean, if, if if conservatism was really about conserving and about that philosophy, then you would see environmentalists on the extreme right, yeah. conserving the environment, right? Yeah. So it really is preposterous. So we tell ourselves these stories, but they are self-delusional stories. So you talk about the damage it does, right? I mean, people losing their marriage, people losing their friends. This is awful. And we think like any sin, and this is a society-wide sin. I mean, if, if you're religious or you just think this is metaphorical, whatever you think, the first step to repentance and to fixing things is recognition. You have to recognize it first. And our society is in collective denial. If we just recognize that our beliefs are tribal, are elephant, not rider, then we would hold them more at length. Then we would be less likely to think somebody who, who doesn't agree with us on a position is on the left and a heretic and part of the other and needs to be divorced or disowned as a friend. We would simply say, hey, there's a whole lot of issues in politics and and, and we have two parties, and each party is gonna stand for some good things and some bad things. And if somebody disagrees, well, okay, we can discuss, but it isn't uh it isn't an identity, it isn't a uh it isn't a philosophy, and it doesn't make them fundamentally bad. It's just there's a whole bunch of policies, and we can pick and choose those policies, and everyone's gonna have a different bundle. That would be much more the kind of world I wanna live in. Uh and then another thing you said, you were talking about, you know, height and the psychological correlates, people um, you know, you're talking about, I think, uh disgust, right? How yeah. How there used to be this idea that conservatives were more disgusted. And so that somehow led to conservative positions, because if you're disgusted by things, then you'll adopt all the positions of left and right. But but what we find is when you dig into all these psychological studies, they were all incredibly um, cherry-picked, all based on cherry I mean, John Bargat Yale is an excellent, excellent psychologist, but he was trying to prove that all conservative positions are driven by fear of things going wrong, right? Oh, I'm so afraid things are going wrong, so I'm going to conserve things the way they are, because I'm afraid, I'm afraid. So what he did is he looked at you know three or four issues and said, sure enough, we find conservatives more afraid on those. But why only three or four issues? He didn't talk about the minimum wage. Why? Because who's more afraid of losing their job and not having enough, enough to provide for their family without that safety net of a minimum wage? People who consider themselves liberals. He didn't talk about gun violence. Why? Who's more afraid about guns? Liberals. He didn't talk about, you know, war. Back then, conservatives were more likely to support wars. Well, if you're such, if conservatives are such frady cats, as John Barg was saying, why were they far more likely to sign up for the military and support military action? So every single one of these psychological studies purporting to show that either conservatives or liberals have an essence, an essential psychological characteristic that binds everything, you will find cherry picking in a very disturbing degree only cherry-picking those that confirm the thesis and ignoring all that falsify. And since falsification is the essence of the scientific method, there is something that has an essence. Ideology does not but science does. You propose a hypothesis, and then you put it up for testing and falsification. If there isn't false, possible falsifying evidence, then it's not a valid theory. And pretty much every theory of ideology, essentialist theory of ideology, you can look at or every attempt to prove ideological essentialism is based on cherry-picking, confirmation bias, and not falsification.
0: It's a good point, and I think the elicitor's bias is not only big in politics; it's for mild industry as well. I mean, we when we did market research, we always used to say that we use market research like a drunk uses a lamppost—more for support than illumination, right? Sure. And so yes. the idea there is simple. And you actually mentioned a really cool study, which I jumped out to me when we talked about this, is that there was a study by Barber and Pope, and they expected principles, principled ideologues, to behave differently from tribal partisans, but they actually found that. Through their research, the partisans and the ideologues were exactly tribal. There was no difference. And so that goes back to the mention of, you know, emotion being the more powerful driver specific to politics. And then from only then do you actually justify what your beliefs are. So another thing you mentioned, which I thought was really key, is that the problem for American politics isn't tribalism. The problem is that we have yet to actually agree that it's a problem, (laughs) right? right. I'm paraphrasing you, but it's that we just don't acknowledge that it exists. And I think that for me, as someone who has such a wide swath of friends, I have changed politically more in the last four or five years than I ever have in my life. Maybe it's because I'm getting older, but the idea is I sat on a one of my podcasts. I had a buddy of mine who owns who's a big gun advocate and NRA member and all of that. And we brought on a guy named Anthony Calandro who owns the biggest gun range in the United States. He's the executive board member at the NRA. And we talked, you know, Hey, I'm like, Hey, I'm a complete neophyte. What are we talking about? What is a, you know, what is a assault weapon? What does it mean? How do we, you know, what do you think about banning them? And and so I spent, I don't know, 30 or 40 hours doing some homework before or after this chat. And I You know, I'm not I don't have I don't hold the same beliefs I once held based on that discussion. And the same thing with my buddies who are even the even my friends that vote for Trump and think that he they like his policies. We don't hate each other because I grew up with them. Right. So we sit down and we talk and they make fun of me and they call me their favorite libtard and things like that. But the idea there (laughs) is that we 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 are helping each other understand the other side. And I think that's really the biggest issue. Understanding is far more important than agreement, right? Because it doesn't matter that you believe the same thing about abortion or you believe the same thing about fiscal policy or foreign policy or anything to do with you know nationalism, all the big topics that we have today as a culture. And I think that's why I like the idea of be behind your framing, because if you're in a tribal bucket, you can just admit it. You know, when when Clinton was going through his stuff, I was like, hey, it doesn't affect what he's doing. He's obviously doing a good job as president. And then when <laughs> Trump was being, you know, the same doing well, not the same, but he was also an adulterer and and uh, I was like well you know he's just a horrible person And they're like yeah but too much you can't be consistent and so like I have to catch myself and you mentioned something also that is and i'm paraphrasing it but how important humility is and the fact that essentialism doesn't allow for us to be hum to be humble so you want to touch on that a bit because I think that's really important
1: yeah so uh essentialism gives the illusion of omniscience right because if there's just one issue in politics, you only have to get one issue right. And once you've chosen the correct side, either left or right, then the thinking is done. You have all of the answers. Because if indeed, if the left stands for social justice, and social justice is good, and every position considered left wing, climate, taxes, minimum wages, all these things are all part of that left wing philosophy, then you are correct about every issue in politics, simply by virtue of identifying with the left. As soon as you adopt that, you already know all the answers. So so you don't have to think, you don't have to reconsider, you don't have to do what you have been doing, Joey, to your great credit, rethinking issues, because you already know they're right. So essentialism oh, is yeah. a terrible, terrible thing for many, many reasons. But one of them is it's a humility killer. It tells us we are omniscient. It tells us we have all the answers. This, this explains, I mean, I really believe this. This is why we have cancel culture. This is why people are shutting down and, and believing in, in minimizing free speech. Why should we listen to anybody else talk? I have nothing to learn. I already right. know they're wrong. A priori, because I've adopted the correct side. And once you have the correct side, nobody can teach me anything because I already have all the answers. If I believe in social justice and everything considered left wing promotes social justice, then anybody who disagrees with any position considered left wing is therefore an enemy of progress, an enemy of social justice, a racist, a fascist. Pick your epithet. You already mm-hmm. know that without thinking. The thinking is done. The thinking was done the second you identified as left wing. Um, so, you know, like you say, you say, um, well, maybe I'm getting older and that's why I'm, um, you know, rethinking things. I hope that's true. Um, the psychological research I've seen suggests that actually younger people's brains are a little more right. plastic. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, I love many older people. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> parents are wonderful people. Uh, the, the most <laughs> charitable person I know, um, is, uh, you know, an older man and and they're all very tribally, uh, tribally red, uh, very much Trump supporters. Yeah. Um, it's not because they're not great people. It's because I think because their brains are less plastic and it's hard to think outside the box. So that's why I have hope. I mean, the young people are messed up in a lot of ways these days with the depression, the anxiety, the gender dysphoria, all these kinds of things. But, um, but to their credit, I guess, young people do have more plastic brains and I think they will be more open to our argument where people who have spent 70 years of life thinking in terms of left and right, will have a really hard time accepting what we're saying or jettisoning this this paradigm. So my hope lies in two things. One, that young people's brains are more plastic and we can reach them. And then two, you know, Jonathan Haidt is a little bit of a fatalist, right? When he talks about the elephant and the writer, it almost seems as if he thinks we're we're, we're screwed. I mean, the elephant's in charge. And and so we're done for. No matter what you do, the emotions are going to dominate over reason. Well, to me, it's not that clear. It's a scale. You can be more and less rational. Nobody's perfectly rational, just like nobody's perfectly honest or perfectly objective. But we can be more rational. And we have gotten much, much less rational in politics over the last 50 years. There's no question about that. Study after study confirms it. The bad news is we've gotten less rational. The good news is is that height is wrong. Because if he was right that it was inevitable, then we always would have seen the same level of irrationality in politics. But we haven't. People used to be better and more rational. They didn't think as tribally once upon a time. So if it can get worse, it can also get better. And and so a little bit of my, my hope lies there. Uh, last point you touched on, you mentioned um, party versus ideology, right? So the typical essentialist way of thinking about this is you have two parties, and these parties are social things. They're social groups. Um, and, and these parties kind of exist as social institutions to bring people together, to raise money, to put forward candidates, and so on and so forth. So there's party. And then you've got ideology. You've got this philosophy of conservatism or this philosophy of liberalism. And the left wing philosophy defines the left and right wing philosophy defines the right. And then the parties can kind of move to the right or left. That's the typical view. And as you know, that's completely wrong, As as we put it forward, that, in fact, the parties define right and left. Whatever the Republican Party happens to be doing will be considered right wing. When the Republican Party was against tax cuts, that was considered right wing under Barry Goldwater. When the, when the Republican Party was in favor of tax cuts under George W. Bush, that was considered right wing. When the Republican Party was against war under Senator Taft, that was considered right wing. When the Republican Party embraced war under George W. Bush, that was considered right wing. When the Republican Party was in favor of tariffs, it's right wing. When they're against tariffs. (laughs) So the parties define the ideologies. It's not that there's these free floating essentialist philosophies called ideologies and then the parties. The parties determine what is considered right wing and left wing. So what we want people to do is to realize that, yes, we do live in a two-party system. I'm not against that. People think, oh, you guys are recommending we have more parties. Not necessarily. I think the two-party system has a lot to offer it. I'm convinced it's probably the best way to, to organize ourselves as a society. However, like you say, it's about recognizing what the parties are. The parties are like baskets. Thankfully, Joey can go to, you know, Albertsons and, and or, or a grocery store And he can go and pick all his own groceries. He can pick Swiss cheese. He can go get pickles. He can go get tortillas, whatever it happens to be, whatever he wants. But what if Joey showed up at the store and they just had two baskets and said, Joey, you have to pick one of the two. That's what we have to do when we vote, right? I mean, it's it's, it's either Republican or Democrat. So Joey is going to look at those baskets and he's going to say, you know what? I don't love either of them. They're not perfect. Both have things I like and things I don't like. But I'm going to go with this basket, basket A, because it has a few more of the things I like and a few less of the things I dislike. That's rational. Joey would be irrational if he started saying, actually, everything in cart A is better than everything in cart B. And anybody who picks cart B is an evil, terrible person. And yet that's what happened in politics. If we just recognize that the parties are baskets, Random baskets, more or less, with a whole bunch of good things and a whole bunch of bad things. Then we can be more self-critical the same way that Joey would be self-be critical of his basket and say, yeah, darn it. They gave me Twinkies. I don't like Twinkies. Darn it. But that was in my basket. So I had to choose it. But we're not doing that in politics. The myth of left and right has caused us to defend our baskets at all costs, to accept everything in the basket, to, to believe that, that any departure from any item in the basket makes you somehow a, a heretic and an evil person. Ergo cancel culture.
0: Yeah, and that's actually another piece that you talked about specific to your Aristotle mention with Thymos, in the sense that you have a quote here and it says, once we realize, and this is another thing too we get your take on, what's specific to intellectuals. Once we realize that intellectuals are more skilled in using system two thinking, so this Daniel Kahneman stuff, thinking to rationalize system one impulses, a psychologist named Tyler Sherrott notes that the greater your cognition capacity, the greater your ability to rationalize and interpret information at will. And to creatively twist data to fit non-essences that make sense that the politically active are more likely to be socialized into left-right categories than the politically inactive, which I thought was really cool. And then your thymos mentioned was the desire for recognition and status, superiority over others. And one way to fulfill this desire is by aligning yourself with a superior group, which you talked about with social justice. Because if there's one thing that is really, I could say, that would sit within the left, it is social justice warriors. I no matter what topic I'm reporting on, whether it's defund the police, critical race theory, gender ideology, which are all big topics we covered in the last year, the social justice folks, if you want to call them progressives, I don't know what the term would be. I've, again, I'm re- reframing my own vernacular because it's not a left thing. It's a tribal thing. It is very mm-hmm. tribal to believe that you are part of something that is bigger than you are, which is wonderful. It's why religion works. Mm-hmm. Bigger than that is that you're like, oh, you know what? I'm better than the other side because I care more about the impoverished and about the less fortunate and about people of color and about trans folks. I care. The right are lacking empathy. If anything, they're apathetic. Worst case, they're actually outright mean-spirited. And so I can't have anything to do with that party or those people. And that's, again, we're seeing the dangerous divide here specific to villain versus heroes. So if you believe that you're on the hero side, right. You, you actually move forward to encapsulate, you know, in words. And so I think to your point, do you want to talk a little bit about the intellectual piece? Cause that was really curious to me specific to intellectuals being even more, um, aligned with tribe and justification yeah. based on their own words.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So that's, um, you know, that's what Robert, uh, um, Rob, uh, Kurzban, um, Jason Wheedon, they, they're these terrific psychologists who have written uh, about this, but they show that, you know, I mentioned earlier how there's a correlation between, again, the old example, tax cuts and and abortion restriction. There's yeah. a correlation there. But what they show is that that correlation is much, much smaller than you would think. It's barely over 50%. But wait a minute. I thought an essential philosophy and that everybody is either on the left or right. And if you're on the right, you're in favor of tax cuts. And, you know, so you, so if it was true, it'd be exactly, you know, anyway. So that correlation would be close to 100% if the essentialist theory is true, but it's not. Okay. So why do we all think that those two issues do go together? And the answer is because the opinion makers believe it more than anybody else. And the opinion makers are more sorted into ideological categories. So why is that? Now, the essentialist theory would say, well, it's because. Intellectuals, because they're smarter, because they think about things, they are more likely to get at the truth of what actually goes together. And since tax cuts and abortion restriction naturally go together because they both somehow conserve, well, an intellectual is more likely to, uh, to arrive at that truth because their intelligence leads them to that truth. That's the essentialist theory talking. The reality is, <laughs> and what we're getting at there mm-hmm. is, that they are much better at ex post thinking. It's the same reason that intellectuals were much more likely to support the Salem witch hunts. Um, the intellectuals were much more likely to support Christian dogmatism in the Middle Ages, um, because they are better at spinning those ex post stories. So in the, in the, in the essentialist theory, it's philosophy first and they say oh intellectuals are more likely to be philosophical therefore to have consistent policies therefore to you know align with the tribe and all of these things we say that's backwards no 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 since tribe comes first well everybody's tribal and so intellectuals join the tribe most of them have joined the left-wing tribe or the blue tribe uh, they then adopt all the policies pretty much all of my colleagues in history who a person agree with every single position considered left- wing and then what they do is they concoct a story now why can't they see the reality? that actually all those things go together and they shouldn't be checking the boxes on everything and they should be thinking independently. I mean, they're intellectuals for crying out loud. Shouldn't (laughs) they be the most independent-minded? Shouldn't they be the least ideological? And the answer is because they are so good at spinning the stories I've told you about, about showing that everything considered left-wing advances social justice because they can tell those stories so effectively. You know this is an ad guy, as a marketing guy, it's all about the story and intellectuals are so good at concocting narratives, concocting stories that makes incoherent things seem coherent. And that's why they, my colleagues lose their way. And that's the single biggest problem at universities today is exactly what you're talking about. So, you know, once you've convinced yourself that everything considered left-wing advances social justice, you're obviously not going to listen to anybody else. But if you're really concerned about social justice, if it's not about lording over your superiority, I'm morally superior to you because I care about social justice, and you obviously don't because you're not on the left, right? If you really care about social justice rather than the virtue signal, rather than the Mm. thymus or the thumos, the tribal superiority, (laughs) then what you'd be doing is you would be begging, not, not shutting down opposition. You would be begging for opposition. You would say, I am trying to make our society more just and I don't know how to do it. Nobody does because we're human. We are flawed. We don't know everything. We're not omniscient. So please, when we're talking about race, please come talk to me. And tell me your perspective so that I can think better and I can think in a higher way and that I can, because truth comes not by declaring something ex cathedra is true and then silently disagreement. That's that's how we're doing it more and more. That's how they did it in the Middle Ages. That doesn't get you to truth. Truth comes through constructive dialogue. It comes through bouncing ideas off. It Mm -hmm. comes from submitting ideas to testing. And dialogue is a great way to test them. And so if you really cared about social justice, about advancing racial equality, you would listen to as many possible perspectives as you could, because the only way to get to what actually promotes racial justice is to listen to all of those and to come up with something nuanced more than what passes as kind of the sound bite thing we have going today. So what advances social justice? I don't know. You don't know. Nobody else on this planet does. But the essentialists say, yes, we do. We know everything because we have identified with the left. And therefore, we shut down anybody who disagrees with us. That's the exact wrong way to accomplish social justice. So I'm not against being a social justice warrior if that means legitimate concern for the disadvantaged. But a true social justice warrior would be in the business of trying to listen much, much more and 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 shut down and silence and argue and hate much, much less. Uh, and that's why I think the quest for social justice is more often than not a pseudo quest for social justice. And it's more a quest for moral, moral superiority.
0: Well, and tried. I think that's the one thing I've seen with a lot of the young people. When I was reporting on Defund the police, I did I interviewed politicians, uh, beat cops, leadership in departments, and some some progressives at the DNC in Sacramento here in California. And after you know, a couple hundred hours of reporting, I actually came to the conclusion that the social justice warriors could not answer the one question that I asked. When they say we need to abolish the police, it's not a defund. It's it's abolished because its origins were slavery and oppression. It's fundamentally flawed. The same arguments taking place right now with the murder of Tyree Nichols. You know this, and and those discussions are still coming back. And what I always wanted to know is, okay, what? Let's just say it is that every institution that had origins of slavery and oppression have to go away. I mean, that's really a big thing to think about because what do you do? But what does that look like? If you're a social justice warrior and you're a progressive, you care, by definition, about the least least fortunate among us. You care about people of color. The the people most affected by a defunding of police departments are the poorest among us and the least fortunate and people of color. So it doesn't make sense, even with your own ideology, to say that you want to actually defund. If you want to use your words correctly, because I hate the phrase defund the police as an ad guy, I'm just offended. But the bigger piece is is like it doesn't work. The ideology doesn't work. It what we actually came down to was the last interview I had was with the chief of police, John Cregan, in a department here in Northern California. And he oversees 250 uniform officers. And he said, You know what? I said, I asked him, I said, Sir, if you had your druthers, what would you do differently with your department? And he said, Well, We would like more budget for more additional cameras. We want more budget for de-escalation training. We want more budget for mental health services. We'd love to implement something we call an in-response team, which is a nondescript van with you know, a homeless advocate, a paramedic, and a therapist that goes out to about 25% of the calls into dispatch. And the reason he mentioned that number is about 25% of the calls into dispatch each month are mental health related. So I was like, wow, this is really cool. And they did launch that, by the way. The in-response teams at Santa Rosa PD are exactly that. When you have a mental breakdown or a psychotic break of any kind, they send this team out because it's less intimidating than two you know, officers with badges and a police car and sirens and all that. And so I was like, that's a really cool thing. And then when I asked the social progressives, what do you guys want? They said the same exact thing, Hiram. We want more de-escalation training. We want more mental health services. And what they were actually saying when I got down to it, so you're not saying defund, you're talking about reimagining or repurposing dollars, and everything had to do with money. Everything had to do with money. So even when the police themselves, which are the go-to, anything goes wrong, someone's throwing rocks at cars, call the police. Someone's having a psychotic break, call the police. Someone went and broke into Walgreens, call the police. They're not trained for mental health. They don't want to go on mental health calls. Bigger than that, what I found out in my own hometown is that the police go to the same houses all the time because they know, oh, here comes Susie. She's going to lose it again. And they have 12 beds available in Sonoma County for mental health services because they don't have the budget for it. So like all of these things specific to that one issue is, and this is a, a very consistent red thread between every major topic that we're studying at True 30, is that we're not that far apart as a group. And you talked about that later on in your book in the sense that we're not that far apart in the sense that we we believe, you know, if you look at the progress we've had around gay marriage, right? You want to talk a little bit about that? Because I can't find it. I have too many notes. But you did mention, oh, no, here it is. In practice, the parties are no further apart on most key issues than they were in previous eras. For instance, most Democrats and Republicans currently favor gay marriage, They believe in restricting trade, want to retain entitlement spending, oppose high taxes, and believe in foreign policy isolationism. That's something that we can all agree on, most of us can agree on politically, but we still think, oh, there's no way the right, or there's no people on the right have any common sense, and and the people on the right is like, there's no way anyone on the left has any common sense. We disagree on everything. I hate them. We're the heroes. They're the villains, and it's not working.
1: Yeah, so it goes back to the beginning of what we talked about. I mean, (laughs) If you had to summarize our argument in one sentence, it would be there is more than one issue in politics. There really is. And yet here we are talking left and right. So, you know, so once you accept that, and most people say, Well, duh, that's obvious. Before they get into, you know, lizard brain, let me justify, let me concoct <laughs> post stories. But if you can catch them before that and say, Do you agree there's more than one issue in politics? Most people, a common sense would be, well, yeah, of course. Okay, yeah. then don't talk left and right. Let's just talk about exactly those policies. If you really are with me that there's more than one, leave tribalism, leave left and right, leave the political specter behind and just talk about issues. If we did that, it would do exactly what you're saying. It would, it would lower the temperature. It wouldn't be, uh-oh, you know, lizard brain kicking in, tribal kicking in, somebody who's on the right is talking to me and they're the enemy. And so it's going right. to uh, go, you know, turn up to 11 very quickly. Instead, it would be, here's somebody in front of you. They don't have a label, neither left nor right. Um, they have a particular view on this particular issue. Go ahead and talk about it. One, you probably find you agree much more than you. you right. Think. And two, the disagreement, whatever it might be, would be constructive disagreement and empirically based rather than lizard brain, tribally and uh, anger based. So that's ultimately what we're calling for. You know, something we get a lot is, well, you're saying we should abolish the political spectrum, but you can't just abolish something. You need to replace it with something else. Well, one, no, you don't. <laughs> you If there's a bad model, Getting rid of it is better than continuing with it, right? So, so an analogy we used is we talk about how um in the in the 19th century and 18th century, even more so, people believed in the four humors theory of disease. They yeah. believed that that health was determined by a balance of black bile, yellow bile, blood, phlegm, and and so you had to bleed people to bring balance back. Um, you know, one day the doctors woke up and said, "This just isn't true. It, it's just not true. The four humors theory does not accurately describe reality." And and people. Some people said, well, you can't throw out this theory until you have a better one. No, you can. Stop bleeding your patients and stop it now. <laughs> you don't need something better to stop bleeding your patients. Get rid yeah. of the bad theory immediately. Bad theories have bad consequences. If they don't bear any relationship to reality, which the political spectrum doesn't, which the four humors theory doesn't, then stop using them. You don't need something better to replace them with. And frankly, the medical profession doesn't have anything better to replace it with. There's no, there's no all-encompassing model. For the, for the medical profession. If you go to a doctor, it's, they're not going to say, well, you have, you know, there's two kinds of people and two kinds of illnesses and two kinds of doctors, either type A or type B. Where are you on the medical spectrum? They're not going to do that. They're just going to say, tell me your symptoms. And on a very granular level, there's thousands of types of illness, thousands of ways to approach the illnesses. And and we're just going to talk about it on a very micro granular level. That's what we're proposing. Now, could some political science genius in the future come up with a new map that's more accurate? Because chemistry does have a better map, right? I mean, they threw out a bad map and they got the periodic table. That is a multi-dimensional model of reality that is extremely effective, right? Every column tells you something. Every row tells you something. The groupings tell you something. There's little numbers and letters on the different parts. So, you know, you get 20 or so dimensions of information communicated on that thing in a very effective way. Is there a map like that that we could develop politically eventually? Maybe. I don't have it. I leave it to some future genius to figure that out. But what we are certain of is that the political spectrum is a bad map and a bad model and and no model is better is, is better than a, a bad misleading model as medicine makes clear and the fact that medicine doesn't have an overarching model to describe medical science doesn't prevent doctors from doing a great deal of good so get rid of all you know get rid of the political spectrum and simply go granular that's the single biggest suggestion we have of how to talk politics. do not mention left right us talk about the issue. You believe in more gun control, let's talk about more gun control. Let's not say, ooh, right-wing, fascist, and and, and escalate from there. Just talk about the issues.
0: And that's where your goal grand and you have, we should replace meaningless ideological categories, such as liberal or conservative, with substantive categories, such as deficit hot, tax cut advocate, immigration restrictionist, or abortion right activist. Because I actually agree with you, if you're talking with someone about that, Obviously abortion is one of the biggest topics in our body politic today. And it's, I think, as Lawrence Tribe talked about it, it's an absolute, it's a clash of absolutes. So on the left, your, your, your absolute is that it's a, an autonomy and privacy issue for an adult human female. And on the right, it's about protecting the unborn fetus. No matter what development, you know, it could be a zygote and you're like, nope, you can't touch it because if you do, it hurts the actual, you know, growth of the baby. And, and so you're actually murdering babies which is something my mother says out loud and has for decades. My mother's 82 years old. She's a diehard Catholic. And she says, well, your party murders babies. And I said, well, mom, (laughs) I love you. And that's a little hyperbolic. You know, we're not murdering babies. But I do appreciate, you know, where she's coming from. So let me ask you, before we get to the remedy of Go Grandler, I wanted to discuss one thing with you because I thought I got a kick out of it which was the private language fallacy. <laughs> you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I loved it because it applies not only to this topic, but the private language fallacy, excuse me, is the erroneous belief that private individuals can arbitrarily decide the meaning of public words. Fucking love it. <laughs> Cause it's irritating to me when people reinvent the word racism or reinvent the word, you know, woman or man or, you know, like if, Hey, if we're going to adopt canonical changes to actually accepted words, can we just have a common sense dialogue about it, right? Do you wanna talk a little bit about how that plays into this? Because that's a really cool fallacy.
1: <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's um, I would say that's probably the single biggest pushback we get. So um, to our theory is we say, look, there's no coherence, there's nothing, you know, all these things they are called conservative, Um they're constantly changing. And so, for instance, let me just give you the best example to illustrate the private language fallacy. All right. So you had Ronald Reagan, considered right wing, considered conservative. Yeah. What did Ronald Reagan believe? A whole bunch of unrelated stuff, obviously. Yeah. But what he believed in was considered right wing at his time. Now you look and you see what Donald Trump is doing, which is opposite in many ways of Reagan. Whereas Reagan was a hawk, yeah. Trump is an isolationist. Whereas Reagan believed in smaller government, Trump says Big government, and and the record of the Republican Party over the last twenty years proves this. It's not rhetoric; it is true. The Republican Party has outspent the Democrats every time they've been in power. So, so the Republican Party is the party of big government. Let's just make no mistake about it. (laughs) It, This is the historical facts talking, not rhetoric talking. Okay, so it's the opposite of what Reagan was doing. So I say you're saying small government is conservative. So why is why are conservatives following Donald Trump? If he's if he's big government, you say you say being militaristic like Bush was and in invading Iraq is right wing. Well, then then why is Donald Trump opposed to it and why do conservatives support him and why is you know why is he considered a conservative? And, and their answer is, well, Reagan was a true conservative. Right. And Donald Trump is not a true conservative. The problem is that we privately can't decide the meaning of words. The public go. decides the meaning of words. Yeah. And so what everybody uses. So if everybody is calling Donald Trump a conservative and, and, and if the conservative political action, action conference is supporting Trump, the the public party is supporting Trump, conservative talk radio is supporting Trump. And most importantly, self-identified conservatives are supporting Trump. Then I'm sorry he is a conservative and there's nothing you or I can do to change that. We don't get to decide the meaning of language. So if you believe what Reagan believed, call yourself a Reaganite. Fine. But don't say, I'm a conservative, and these people are all pseudo-conservatives, because the usage community disagrees with you, and it's ultimately the usage community that decides the meaning meaning of words. I mean, Ludwig Wittgenstein, the, the great um, Austrian philosopher, went into this very deeply in a, in a very philosophical way, but, but language is public by definition, and recognizing that is what helps us to accept the, the social theory.
0: No, that's fantastic, and I love it, because it does cascade across every major disconnect of party. So if you're a Democrat or Republican, those are, we are changing words across the board now, and a lot of social justice words specifically. You know, racism used to meant that I, I'm half Mexican, but I look white, so let's just say I, as a white male, think that I'm better because my skin color is different than someone else. That's historically what we understood as racism. The anti-racist phenomenon that Imbran Kendi's and Robin DiAngelo's of the world are saying that if you tell yourself that you're not racist, Just simply by saying that has proven that you are a racist (laughs) and that you need to (laughs) weed out your own internal bias and all your racism. And if you don't go through this actual plan, which I can help you go through, then you're a racist. And that's irritating a lot of people. And that's why I was saying before, I like that private language fallacy because that's one of my biggest gripes in talking with my fellow, you know, anyone about politics is like, can we, let's agree on the words first. Oh, okay. Let's not debate something unless we can agree on what the words mean. Because I I don't think that, and I, I agree with some of Imran Kennedy's stuff, to be clear. I just, and I, I think he's a good human being, I just think that framing everyone as a racist until they prove otherwise is a really bad idea, specific to politics and to just the social uh, interaction necessary for us to compete you know, as a country. So let's get back to your remedy, sir. I think that going granular, an example of that would be, Tribe left, tribe right, team blue, team red, right? As opposed to left and right. So you're basically just saying it's not that we have to reframe a whole cottery of words, it's that we have to get remove the word left and the remove right. And there is replacements for those words, myriad replacements, actually. Like you said, team blue, and and to your point, removing things from the abstract to the proximate. So if you say I'm left, as opposed to saying I believe I'm pro choice. It's much clearer for us in a political dialogue to say, I'm pro-choice. Great, I'm pro-life. Oh, can I ask why? Yes, I'm religious. Oh, okay, so is my mom. <laughs> so I can relate to you. And then, and so you're not hating each other, right? Because you're, but you, And you're talking in the proximate language that is accepted for the dialogue and the debate to take place. And I think that's really key. My question, again, to mention my background, is if you want to change the way people think, you need to change the language. And if you want to change your language to make them think differently, to change their behavior, to buy the stuff that we were selling, <laughs> right? That was what we spent decades doing, me and my colleagues. So my big question is that, and some of the pushback I've seen from your book, uh, you know, in, in reviews and things, is that this is too academic and that these guys don't understand because they're in their ivory tower and how are we supposed to actually rename things just to your point with the private language fallacy, it's difficult to rename things, but I can tell you, after reading your book, I have already started to to remove those two words for me, for me personally. I think it's a really good way, my brother's an attorney, and uh, he teaches language um, in law school, legal reasoning and writing, and so he always says to me, if he watches me, um, he'll say, you were way too abstract in that interview. (laughs) It's like, oh, he goes, get out of the abstract, get to the proximate, speak, the way you want to talk. So don't say that left does this or liberals do that because it's nonsense, and I'm like, all right, I got it. And you're saying the same thing. Left and right doesn't work, and I agree with you 100%. The question is, what what does that look like? Our change in speech is necessary, right? And how do you see that? How do we, as a culture, remove the words left and right from our vernacular, because that's a really big ask.
1: Yeah. So it, it is, um, and it's hard to do. Um, yeah. So, so, um, yeah, here's, here's what we, here's what we advocate. Because the essentialist theory is false and because the social theory is true, then. Then, if we just if we just add one word, <laughs> so when I say the left or the right, people think, oh, people who are concerned about social justice versus right. people on the right who don't get, scared. you know, right. people who have this worldview versus people who have that worldview. That's what the essentialist theory is telling us. And so, if I use unadorned the word left or right, that's immediately where people's minds go immediately to the to the essentialist connotations of those terms. But if we said tribe left, tribe right, just add that one word. Suddenly, yeah. it's going to make people think. No, I'm dealing with a tribe, not a worldview, not a philosophy, not an essence. It's a tribe. If instead of saying conservative, liberal, right, left, I said reds, blues, those have tribal connotations, and it would communicate the accuracy of the reality that these are tribes, and people would be much more likely to act in non-tribal ways, we believe. If we would identify the tribes. So Lily Mason, she's a great political scientist. I think she's at Johns Hopkins now. Um, great political scientist, but that her, that's her big criticism. She says, look, you're advocating we start calling these what they are tribes, but won't that make people more tribal? We don't think so. The psychological research we've seen suggests that when people recognize tribes for what they are, once they, once they get to the, the truth that these are tribally connected, not philosophically connected, then they're more, more likely to hold their tribes at length. Uh, a great person on this is Julia Gallup. I don't know if you've had her on your show. Um, but she wrote a book called the scout versus scout mindset, right? Being a scout versus a soldier. Versus soldier. And, and she's noticed. Yeah. So she's pointed out that when people think in terms. Uh, when we recognize tribalism, we hold the tribes more at length. We're more likely to disagree with the tribes. We're more likely to see the tribes for what they are. Uh, when we're caught in the essentialist fallacy, that's that's not the case. So we would just say, yes, it does take a little bit more language. It is going to be hard. Instead of saying he's a liberal, he's a conservative, we say, <laughs> you know, he, he's in favor of deregulating markets. That's a it's few right. more words than right-wing. right wing. right wing is two syllables he's in favor of (laughs) deregulate more more syllables here it takes more words but more words is a is a is a small price to pay for a lot more accuracy the same way that it takes a doctor more words to say he has a bacterial infection instead of He's sanguine, right? Right. Once <laughs> upon a time, you said, no, he's sanguine. He's got too much blood. We got to bleed him. But talking about the reality of what's going on in that person's body takes more words, but it's a small price to pay for more accuracy. So we're asking people to spend a little more effort, a few more syllables to add words to make it more accurate. and And, and that can be as simple as saying tribe left, tribe right, tribe red, tribe blue. Just saying, hey, tribal people, that can help us understand and communicate the reality of what's going on. Instead of the myth of left and right, which is that there's essences behind these
0: things. That's a great answer. Because I was wondering that specifically if tribe would be looked at as a pejorative by people. So if you know you're part yes, of a tribe, it would be. Right? And that's the what like, we want. Oh, no, I but <laughs> correct. But it, it, it one of those yeah. things where it's like I don't I'm not a member of a tribe. I hold these beliefs. So like your your basket analogy would think is wonderful. My mom walks in, if my mom was giving the two basket theory when she walked into the grocery store, all she would care about was abortion, that's it. My mom's been a single issue voter her whole life, she was adopted, and because of that, she and she's Catholic, so that's it. it. My mom could have the abortion piece, and then everything else in her basket she hates, could be liver and onions and everything that she hates, but she would get that basket because of that one issue voter. And so if you call them tribal for that reason, that's where my brain was like, well, they might look at that as uh, an insult right? And is yeah. that to your point too?
1: No. Okay. So let's talk about your mom. If she really is a single issue voter, if she hasn't anchored and adopted, but instead she just said, Hey, it's about abortion. I don't agree with the Republicans and all these other things in the basket. Kudos to your mom for being principled rather than being a tribal lemming and saying, well, I'm just going to accept everything. And right. I'm going to make up stories about how everything that Republicans believe is good. If she really thinks, well, this issue is so important to me, and I don't like other things in the, Good for your mom, in which case don't call her right wing at all. Just say she's pro-life because that's That's, the only accurate thing that works. And yet our essentialist theory is going to lead people to call your mom right wing -wing. and start making analogies to Hitler and saying how evil she is because she's on the far right. When in reality, there's one issue she cares about, right? And so, so maybe she was opposed to the war in Iraq. When people call her right wing, they're going to say, oh, well, she is against killing babies here, but she was sure in favor of killing babies in Iraq, wasn't she? But that's not true. So the political spectrum is a tool of disinformation to tell lies about people like your mom. And so we need to use accurate information so that we can stop lying. The political spectrum is is just a, a terrible tool of miscommunication, misinformation. I mean, good example. There's a brilliant historian in the South. I'm not going to mention her name. She's in a, in a Southern university, but she, she's written this whole book arguing that um, that um, that uh, certain economists are like Hitler. Really? What makes them like Hitler? Well, they're on the radical right, just like mm. Hitler. Really? Well, Well, why are they on the radical right? Well, because they're like Hitler. Well, what makes them like other? Because they're on the radical right. Her whole argument is circular reasoning. We have a brilliant historian here wasting her life, wasting her whole life in circular reasoning because of the left-right myth. The myth of left and right turns people into, into zombies. It shuts off their brain. And incredibly intelligent people waste their time, waste their energy, and most importantly, waste their charity, waste their their benevolence on a bad model. That's what we're trying to get away from. And and, and, and so instead of labeling people like your mom right wing for heaven's sake, just use the accuracy that your mom is pro-life, end of story. That's true, it's granular, it's correct, and it doesn't connect her to Nazism, the Iraq war, tax cuts for the rich, and any other issue that has nothing to do with your mom's beliefs. For heaven's sake, is that too much to ask, Joey?
0: No, and see, I love it. I think the neat, because I've said that before, my mom is not political. So she'll vote one issue, and she'll just go in and pull the lever, like this is it, am Republican. And when she was telling me the other day, when I went back to visit her, all her little friends, I call them the golden girls. They're on their eighties and they live in the senior facility. And I take them out and we play cards together and they'll bring up these things to me. How do you, how do you feel about this, Joel, <laughs> Minnesota? And I was like, well, you know, I, I disagree with you guys on this, but doesn't mean I think you're bad people, you know, and then I'll ask them the same thing. Well, what do you think of this? Oh, I agree with that. Do you think that Donald Trump is a good human being? Oh no. Did you vote for him? Yes. Would you vote for him again? Yes. Like, all right. So you don't care that he's not a good person. No. And then, they, and then they come up with the Hillary stuff, which, you know, a lot of them believe because they watch a lot of Fox News. But it it is one of those things where I think, again, it takes it from the abstract to the proximate. And I think it's fantastic because your conclusion then, you know, I'll, I'll read from your own book here. The widespread reluctance to give up the essentialist theory of ideology today reminds us of the widespread reluctance to give up the geocentric theory of the universe in the Middle Ages. So we need to take, a, to your point, the Copernican leap and move on from these false models, which I laughed out loud when I read that. Um, the choice before us is then a stark one. We can either continue to be socially divided into warring political tribes based on the myth that we are fighting about fundamental worldviews, or we can discard the essentialist fiction and begin the constructive work coming up with political solutions independent of the ideological framework. I think that's best said because it was, it encapsulated everything you put in your 100 pages, and it really helped me understand the pullers, actually the delta between the essentialist theory of ideology and the social theory of ideology. It really makes good sense, and I'm very happy that you wrote the book, and I'm really happy you came on the show today, Hiram. Thanks again, this was really cool.
1: It's been my pleasure, Joy, thanks for having me on.
0: Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe, and while you're at it, Please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time,
1: big hugs.